0: Be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 19 through 34 this morning. Um, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. So um, so why are you here? I'm sure you can all give uh, at least slightly different answers to that question this morning, but you, you should ask yourself the question, why am I here? Uh, what are you doing here in the church? I'm talking about here, right now, this, this hour. Uh, what are you doing here in the church? Why have you come? Why, uh, if you're, you know, a part of this church, you're a member, regular attender, why, why do you come on a regular basis? What's the point? Why are you here? <clears throat> I think there are a lot of good reasons to be here, to be part of the church. Um, And uh, you could cite any one of them, and it would be great. But there is one, there is one reason, above all the others, one reason that gives everything else that we do actual significance, without which nothing else that we do would have any significance. One reason, uh, we come to church to be in relationship with God. That sounds pretty simple, but it's pretty profound. We come to church to be in relationship with God. It's not just a social club. Right, We're not just here for relationships, we're not just here to be with people who are kind of like us. Um, it's not a social club, it's not a philanthropic group, we're not just here to do good things in the world. We are here to do good things, but uh, but that's not the main reason. Uh, it's not just a big group therapy session, right? because we all need to be changed. That's um, maybe getting more to the heart of the matter. but. Even so, uh, it's not just a therapy session for us, though we do have some things in common with all those kinds of groups, social clubs, philanthropic groups, or um, therapy sessions. All those things really would be meaningless if relationship with God weren't at the very center, permeating everything that we do. Um, we get to, real, to, to live and enjoy a relationship with God uh, as our Father. That's the main point of the church. That's the main reason why you're here, whether you'd articulate it that way or not. That's the main reason why we're here. That's the main thing that we're about. And this is what God wants to, for us to enjoy, to live in a relationship with him as our father. This is what God wants. This is what he's made us for. This is the life to which he calls you. No matter who you are, he's calling you to this life. But this is why he calls you to be part of the church, because this is where this life happens. Um, To live with him and know him as your heavenly father together with us. And so, um, there's just one thing, there's just one little problem with that. It's that because of our sin, that's a relationship that needs to be mended. That's a relationship that needs to be uh, restored. We need reconciliation before we can enjoy it as it's meant to be enjoyed. Before we can know God as our Father and live with Him in a good relationship, because of our sin, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be reconciled. So maybe you know something something about broken relationships. I think we all experience broken relationships to some degree or another in our lives. Um, Maybe you know that they're very hard to restore. It's very hard to fix relationships once they've been damaged, once they've been broken. And the worse the break, the harder the reconciliation. Um, The harder the process of the reconciliation. So the break in our relationship with God, not because there's anything wrong with Him. This this break is a one-sided problem, right? Uh, We're the ones that broke it. We're the ones that walked away from it, right? Not because there's anything wrong with him, but because of our sin. The break in our relationship with God was infinitely difficult to mend. The harder the break, the worse the break, the harder it is to fix. This one was infinitely difficult to fix. Reconciliation would take immeasurable forgiveness on God's part, but the gospel says that God was willing to do the hard work, that he made provision for the reconciliation of our relationship that He's done everything necessary for us to live in relationship with Him as our Father, as it's meant to be. And if you want to be right with God, which is, of course, the main reason why we're here, doing what we're doing right now, then you must embrace the provision God has made for your forgiveness. Because it's a real relationship, a real party has been offended, a real party must extend forgiveness, and He has done it. And we have to come to Him on His terms. Um, We must embrace the provision that God has made for our forgiveness and reconciliation with Him. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's pretty basic, pretty essential stuff for us, um, but I think it's important. So uh, let me pray, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask for Your help. We ask for Your Spirit's help as we consider your, Your Word this morning. We're thankful that You've given us Your Word so that we can know You and know the way to be rightly related to You once again and know something of what it means to live in that restored relationship with you. We pray that you would make it meaningful to us at a deep level, a level that we can't uh, even touch in our own hearts. We can't change our own hearts. We need you to do that work, to convince us that you do love us, that you've given your son Jesus for us, and that now we can live in a new relationship with you. We pray that you would uh, grant us this faith as we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the testimony of John, John the Baptist again. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, Nope. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So there's a lot in this passage that we're not going to talk about, Uh, and I wonder whether maybe we should come back and look at it again next week because there's a lot that's really important going on here. But... um, uh, we're not going to talk about it this morning at least. There's, there's a lot in this passage actually about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, his ministry, the, the way that he was talking, the way that he was interacting with people in, um, in those days and talking about Jesus, he's the slightly older uh, first cousin once removed of Jesus. Technically, that's what he is. Just He's the first cousin once removed of Jesus. He's slightly older than him. John the Baptist is very concerned to give testimony or bear witness. When that word shows up um, in in the Greek, it's the same word to give testimony or bear witness, and it shows up three times in our passage that this is what John was doing, right? He's he's very concerned to give testimony or bear witness to Jesus Christ. Normally, uh, we would consider John the Baptist a very important man. We look at his life. And his position uh, with regard to the revelation of God throughout the Scriptures, the way that God is dealing with His people um, in order to make Himself known to them for their salvation, I mean, he's on the level of the Old Testament prophets. He's one of those guys that goes before um, and, and they write their books in the Scriptures and the prophets. And uh, I mean, so he's a big deal, but he, he himself insists on turning our attention to Jesus. Even though he's a big deal, John the Baptist comes on the scene and, and could say, I'm a pretty big deal but he doesn't talk about himself hardly at all. He talks about Jesus. He, ter- he turns our attention to Jesus. In fact, some might say it's a bit of an over-the-top interest that he's got in Jesus. Maybe uh, an unhealthy obsession, right? I mean, there's something wrong with him that he's so fixated on this person that he can't even apparently answer questions like, who are you, <laughs> without talking about Jesus, right? So, <clears throat> uh, that poor simple, pitiable fellow with a one-track mind who's always going on about Jesus, I imagine probably some of you think of me that way, and I'll take it as a compliment. So, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with John the Baptist. There's, there's nothing wrong. In fact, he's just about the sanest person you meet in the Bible. He looks kind of crazy. He's dressed in, in camel hair, and he eats locusts and honey out of the wilderness, and People would probably look at him and say, Yeah, that guy's crazy. He probably would, should be locked up for his protection and ours, right? But he's the sanest person that you meet in the whole Bible, except Jesus. Right? Um, and it's because he's fixated on Jesus. It's because he recognizes, when he sees Jesus, he recognizes something very important, very important about Jesus. And it's because of this fixation on Christ that he's an exceptionally healthy individual. And this is what he sees and can't stop talking about. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he says here and then again in the the following passage. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that just lights up John the Baptist. Um, There are a lot of legitimate ways to talk about Jesus. There are a lot of good titles that could be ascribed to him, a lot of ways that he could be introduced right here. Um, he, I mean, he's, a, he's a teacher. People call him the teacher. He's the Lord. He's the king, you know. Um, it's kind of like in a boxing ring when the announcer introduces the fighters and says, now in this corner, right, and uses several of the most exciting nicknames that he can think of to build up anticipation for the main event. You know, in this corner, the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the one who ranks before me because he was before me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the best he's got. That's what he's excited about when it comes to talking about Jesus. And this is our first introduction to Jesus in the storyline, right? Apart from the prologue or the overture that we've already discussed, now the story is beginning, and this is, this is how we first meet Jesus, this is his first introduction to us, and the fact that he's introduced in this way is important. Because Jesus doesn't come on the scene, he doesn't come into the world, he doesn't come to do his ministry, and his life isn't, isn't recorded, uh, and, and he doesn't get announced as the great moral teacher. That's what a lot of people think of him. You ask people in the culture, what do they think of Jesus great teacher, but he's not announced as the great moral teacher, or he's not announced as the good man you really should imitate more, right? He's not set forth for us that way, as an example for our imitation. That's not how we're introduced to him. The first thing you hear about him in the story, and the thing that should shape your understanding of the whole story, the whole thing now, when you read the Gospel of John, when you read about the life of Jesus Christ… The thing that should shape your understanding of the whole thing is that he's the lamb. He's the lamb. What does that mean? Um, it means, first, that you should not think of Jesus as the one who is here to help you like a self-help guru would. The self-help section in the bookstore, that's not supposed that Jesus doesn't have anything to do with that, right? Um... Mm-hmm. He's not here like a self-help guru would be here. He's not here like a life coach. He's not here like a personal administrative assistant would be. He's not here like a good cheerleader for your morality or your religious life. He's not here in those roles. God doesn't think that you just need a little help here or there, and if you would just try a little harder and clean up a little better and get things in order, then you'd be okay. That's not the way God thinks. God thinks the world needs a lamb. God thinks the world needs a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what that means. So maybe, I mean, this helps with the context. The idea of a lamb is an idea that we we see, it appears all throughout the Scriptures, really. But um, maybe you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, pretty early on in the Old Testament. Kind of one of the main stories uh, that we have, that we refer to, that the Israelite people referred to and that the church refers to in, in terms of God's dealings with his people. The story of the Exodus, when God sent Moses to deliver his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, it's the main picture before Jesus about what Jesus would be like and what he would do. And the big dramatic point, the huge, the hugely important Dramatic point of the Exodus came at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover when God, in his righteous anger, he sent death sweeping through all of Egypt. He did not discriminate, he didn't say, Because you are Israel, because you are my people, you're exempt. He said, Death is going to touch every house in all of Egypt. It's going to visit every house without exception, but here was the deal, in a sense, if you can call it a deal. It was either the life of your firstborn child or it was the life of a perfect spotless lamb in your child's place. Either your life or the life of a lamb. That was the deal that was set up with the Passover. It's the most dramatic event that you see in the Old Testament picturing our salvation, your life, or the life of the perfect spotless lamb. If the the blood of the lamb marked your door, you slaughter the lamb, you take its blood, and you mark out your door, saying this household is, in a sense, protected by this blood, then death would pass over and you would be spared. And not only spared, not only spared um, death and, and misery there and suffering, not only spared that, but really ushered into a new life, ultimately delivered from Egyptian oppression and set, f- set free for a new life with God. It's either your life or the Lamb's life. And if it's the Lamb's life, then, um, then it's not just a meager existence for you, it's a new glorious life with God for you. Um, so every year, God's people commemorated the Exodus by celebrating God's provision of the Lamb for their salvation. They celebrated the Passover. The Passover lamb is who Jesus is. Ultimately, he is this lamb, the lamb that is provided by God himself, the lamb of God, God's own provision to take away the sin of the world. He is the perfect and pure and spotless and substitutionary sacrifice that apparently God thinks we need in order for our relationship with him to be made right. right. You and I and everyone else have broken our relationship with, our, with, with God through sin, through our rebellion, through unbelief and distrust, right, and disobedience to him and his commandments. And Jesus comes into the world to stand in our place. Here we are as humanity made in God's image, made for this relationship with God that we've broken And he comes as the perfect human being to reintegrate humanity with God. He stands in our place as the only one who never sinned, the only one whose life was always characterized by perfect love for for God and for other people, by perfect trust in God and submission to his Father, and by perfect obedience. And he suffered to the point of death for that obedience, He's the only one who's ever lived the human life the way that it was meant to be lived, the way that we've totally botched and walked away from. He did it right. So he's the spotless, the spotless one. And the result of our lives of chosen autonomy from God, that's what sin is, just wanting to be apart from God and wanting to be God for ourselves, right? The result of a life of chosen autonomy from God is, is captivity to our own sinful desires, it's uh, captivity to, to our own gods of our own making, false gods. It's estrangement and alienation from the one true God. And it is, in a, in a very real way, uh, God's righteous anger and wrath rests on us for our disobedience and our death and our separation ultimately from Him as the source of our life, the source of life we've cut ourselves off from. That's the result. And so now the estate in which we live is one of, of uh, misery Apart from God, uh, it's no life, it's death. That's the the life that we've chosen for ourselves in our autonomy from God. And so the relationship with God as our Father is broken, but here comes the Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, and He doesn't just live the perfect life for us. He died the death that we deserve to die under God's wrath at, at the cross. He went to the cross for us, and He suffered what we deserve. He suffered the breaking of his relationship with God. His relationship was great. His relationship with God as his father was perfect. And he went, and when he was on the cross hanging, God looked away from him just like he would look away from us. And that that, that means he suffered the alienation and the rejection, the abandonment that we've brought upon ourselves for our sin, for our rebellion. He suffered the breaking of his relationship so that ours might be restored. So our relationship with God, as Father, might be made right. Our guilt was piled on Him, as we read in Isaiah 53, uh, one of the, um, the confession of uh, sin and assurance of pardon passages. There in Isaiah 53, it also says of Jesus that He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, right? and His guilt was piled. Uh, our our guilt was piled up on the guiltless One, piled up on Him, and He died under the weight of it, so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. So our relationship with God could be made right. So Jesus, as the Lamb of God, he doesn't just give you a technique for a clean conscience. That's not what this is about. You having a good conscience really has very little to do with anything. Right? Jesus didn't come to give you a good conscience to make it easier for you to sleep at night, to make you feel okay about yourself. Jesus takes a broken relationship and he mends it. That's what he's, he came to do, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to, to restore our relationship with God so that we can now live with him as our Father, as we were meant to. All right, so, we could argue about the scope of the phrase um, that he takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean, the world? You know, um, we could argue about that phrase, but I think we're… We're distracting ourselves with such arguments. The real question is, has Jesus taken away your sin? Has Jesus taken away your sin? And the definitive answer to that is yes. If you're hearing this, Jesus has taken away your sin. Through his life and through his death, he hasn't eradicated sin from your life altogether. That's not what it means when it says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world at the cross uh, he didn't just make it so that you would be a sinful person and everything, uh, sin, sinless person, and everything you would do from that point on would be perfect and right and morally pure, and done uh, out of trust in God and, and obedience to to God as your Father. He hasn't eradicated sin from your life altogether. We still find ourselves ignoring God and uh, and distrusting God and self-absorbed, self-directed. Right but he has once and for all removed your sin as an obstacle to your relationship with God. There is no point at your life from this time forward, there's no reason anymore to think that God is unhappy with you, ever. That that relationship is not right. Because Jesus has once and for all done everything necessary to remove your sin as an impediment from your, uh, in your relationship with God, an obstacle to your relationship with God. He hasn't taught you how to manage your sin. He didn't come to teach you how to do it better so you sin less. It's not his primary goal, his primary mission and ministry. He didn't teach you how to manage your sin. He has dealt with it himself decisively through his sacrifice. So knowing this, knowing this now, you are free to relate to God as your heavenly father. What kind of freedom is that? You're free now to relate to God as your heavenly father. You don't need to be suspicious of his favor ever again. To wonder whether he's, he's actually pleased with you, wonder whether he actually loves you or not. You do not have to wonder about that. That question is settled. You can trust that he loves you and he forgives you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do tomorrow. He forgives you and accepts you. After all, He's the one who sent his son to be the lamb for you. He knew what you needed, and he provided it. Now, if you've really begun to enjoy that relationship with God, that relationship that is uh, restored and freely um, given to you as a gift of his grace, something you didn't earn, something you could never deserve, you can't ever pay him back for it, it's a gift. If you begin to really enjoy that, then you've tasted, and if you've really tasted forgiveness, and freedom from the guilt of your sin because of Jesus, then you will probably become a little more like John the Baptist here. So, back to John the Baptist, he's always interested in Jesus. He's, he's very interested in Jesus, loves to talk about him. He's not just interested for his own sake, is he? He wants Jesus, he wants God's love in Christ to be revealed to Israel and really to the whole world. He wants other people to know about Jesus. He gives testimony. He bears witness to Jesus. He is concerned that others would know him, that others would taste the same forgiveness, the same relief, the same freedom from guilt, the same restoration of relationship with God as their father because of the provision of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. That's, John wants other people to know that. He's tasted it. He knows how good it is. He knows the misery of the alternative, Uh, still being in your sin and having a broken relationship with God and everything in reality being warped and distorted because of that. Uh, He knows how good it is to be made right with God through Jesus Christ, and so he tells people. And folks keep asking John about himself, asking about himself, and he's uh, he's reluctant to talk much about himself except with reference to Jesus. Um, when they ask him why he's doing this, on what authority he's out there telling people to repent and believe, he doesn't really give them an answer according to their, their question. He just tells them more about Jesus. And he connects what he's doing in baptism with who Jesus is and what, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, the love of God poured out on you as on his only Son, Jesus shares that with you. And what I'm doing, John the Baptist says, is just a, just a poor reflection of that. He's the one, really, that you need to be interested in. He connects what he's doing with what Jesus is all about. John's not arrogant. Right? And I think if we've, if we've really tasted the grace of God in our lives and the provision of, uh, of Christ as the, the Lamb of God, our sacrifice that we need... Um, It'll make us not arrogant, like John. He doesn't condemn other people. I mean, what he says is offensive. That's why we usually imagine or uh, have depictions of John the Baptist as kind of this really grumpy, you know, frowning, scolding type, you know. I don't think it's that. It's The things that he says are offensive, but he's not trying to offend. The things that he says are offensive to self-righteous religious experts, specialists, um, who think that they know everything about God, don't think that they need to be taught anything about God, don't imagine that they need such drastic measures as what John is offering. John's offering this baptism, right, out at the Jordan. He's on the outside of the Promised Land, but hey, we all belong in the Promised Land because we're special. We're the Jews, right? I don't mean to use that word in a derogatory way as Jews. The Jews… These, these people are being held forth as people who rejected Jesus, right? So when John talks about the Jews, and it's kind of a negative connotation there, it's because of their rejection of Jesus. It's not because of their ethnic or national identity, right? But here are these Jews who thought they'd been um, set apart by God because they're awesome. They must be special in and of themselves. And God approves of us, of who we are and what we do. They're, they've been brought into the Promised Land, past the Jordan River, right? Everything past the Jordan, well, everything... On the other side of that, that's the wilderness, that's the Gentiles, that's, you know, the have-nots out there, the people who don't know God like we know God, the people who don't have God's favor like we have God's favor. And, of course, people out there, the Gentiles, the nations, the, the non-Jews, you know, when they come into the, the Jewish religion, when they come into our country, they're baptized. This was a standard practice for them, is that Gentile proselytes would be baptized, and they'd become one of us, Right? But we're already special. We don't, we don't need baptism, the baptism that you're offering, a repentance and forgiveness of sins. What? We're already on the inside here, right? And so what John has to say is offensive to people like that, people who think they're on the inside, who presume that they're on the inside, think they know everything about God, um, don't need a substitutionary sacrifice for sure, right? John does say, Them, among you stands one that you don't know. I mean, apparently, Jesus is actually right there in the conversation that they're having on the outskirts of of Israel. Among you stands one you don't know. You should know him. He came for you. You've been prepared for hundreds of years for this guy to come. You should know him. You should recognize him, but you don't. That's offensive but he doesn't, he's not boasting about his knowledge of Jesus as if he were special because he did know Jesus and you could be awesome like me if you just knew Jesus. That's not the way that he's talking. In fact, he uses the very same language about himself twice in verses 31 and 33. He says, I myself did not know him. You, you don't know him. I didn't know him either. Right? But God revealed him to me. I'm not better than you because I know Jesus. I'm just a recipient of God's gracious revelation. And God's made that revelation to you too. Here's one we didn't know. And He's come to take away our sin. He's come to make our relationship with God right again. God is the one who took the initiative here. So there's nothing for us to boast about when we're talking about becoming a Christian or doing evangelism, comparing ourselves to non Christians or anything like that. This is a religion of grace. Because of God's gracious initiative that we're here, God is the one who saw that the relationship was broken and needed fixing. He actually wanted to fix it. God's the one who sent his own son to be the lamb that we needed. God's the one who sent John the Baptist to bear witness to Jesus so that others would hear, so that this Jesus, it would be known like what he's about, what his life and ministry and work is about. God is the one who has in every way made it possible for you to embrace his provision for your salvation, for your reconciliation to him, so your relationship could be restored. If you feel yourself to be the complete recipient of God's grace like this, then, like John, you will humbly point away from yourself to Jesus in what seems to be good-humored, sensitive, emotionally intelligent ways, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of rejection, persecution. Right. So, embrace Jesus Christ by faith and talk about Him with others who also need God's provision of Lamb just as much as you do. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that You would show us Your love in Jesus Christ more and more in a way that… Um, makes us comfortable with uh, ourselves um, being sinners because apart from your grace and love, we cannot stand to have our sins pointed out. We certainly cannot stand the thought of them being an impediment in our relationship with you, but they are. And we pray that because you love us and you gave your son Jesus for us, we'd be able to see ourselves in the light of your love uh, as we truly are, as sinners who, uh, whose greatest need is a sacrifice in our place so that our relationship with you could be restored, and it's beyond our doing, it's beyond our ability to fix, but you've done it, and once and for all, you've given your Son as the Lamb that we needed to take away our sins so that we could live with you as our Father. And we pray that you would teach us uh, more and more every day of our lives your great love in, um, in ways that persuade us that we really are free, that we really are loved, that we really are forgiven and accepted and cleansed in Your sight, that uh, You really do have favor on people like us, and oh, the many ways that that would uh, change the way that we live in this world, knowing Your love as our, uh, as our gracious Heavenly Father. We pray that this gospel reality would become more and more true in each of us and in our children's lives, and that you would make Jesus Christ the centerpiece of our attention, not just for our own sake and uh, not just for our children's sake, but for the whole world, that you would teach us what it means to be Christ-centered in our speaking to our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends and loved ones who do not yet know you. Because we know uh, the greatest delight of all delights is to know you and be restored to relationship with you. And we want to share that with other people. We pray that you'd help us do that in Christ's name. Amen.